everybody. Welcome to Emmaus Way on this wonderful, warm evening. So tonight we're going to be continuing our conversations about why I am dot dot dot. Tonight is going to be why we are, and it is why we are a consensus-based community. So it seemed like it would be great to start with this Beatles song, We Can Work It Out, because it seems like it would be pretty nice fit. So please join in and sing it if you know it. Try to see in my way Do I have to keep on talking till I can't go on? Are you seeing your way? Run the risk of knowing that I love may soon be gone I can't work I can't work it out Because what you're saying You can get it wrong And still you think that it's alright Think of what I'm saying Look it out and get it straight Or say goodnight I can't work it out I can't work it out Life is very short And there's no time Welcome to Emmaus Way um, for our summer, summer at Emmaus Way. It is hot outside, but luckily it is cooler inside. Um, we are so glad you are here. If you are new to Emmaus Way or haven't been with us in a while, we are a community um, that is captivated by the gospel and are trying to live into that captivation um, through hospitality, the arts, justice um, together. So we are so glad you're with us. And to start our worship tonight, we're going to have the kids lead us in the community song. Though I don't see Joel, who knows it quite well. Elizabeth Eford, are you in the room? You also know it well. Would you start us off? Sorry for the pressure. (laughs) 
about us. We have yellow cards and green cards on the front table. Um, We would love it if you would fill one out. Um, Give us a bit of information. The yellow card, you give us a bit of information about yourself. The green card, you can take some information about us. It has staff's emails and lay leaders who we'll hear from tonight, um, their emails. I think that's the only like weekly announcement. We also have a metallic bowl if anyone feels led to put in money into the metallic bowl. Also on that same table. Two points for me, Dave Deason. I am winning. Talking about giving money. Um, do we have any other announcements? It's kind of summer's ending. People are coming back. Next week. Oh yeah, the action. Showing up to uh, the, the can uh, housing action. I think we have a good we got close to, I think, bar, maybe 200, 250 people there. Yeah, I think it was like 200. Yeah. And it got, it's gotten a lot of press, which has been really, really great. Really, three times on your next day. Yeah. So this action is around Fayette Place um, in Durham and getting affordable housing and community space and really the community coming together and saying you have to talk to the community um, and make this place something of worth and value um, and not now mowed grass, but like just just kind of the bases of foundations of what used to be a community. Um, next week, yes, this week we have lead team speaking, um, sharing why we are a consensus-based community. And they are going to share kind of the story, a bit of the story of lead team and what we mean by consensus and why this is important at Emmaus Way. And I think we'll beautifully articulate um, through different examples of where we have done this well, where there have been some growing edges and what we hope um, to live into the future, what that looks like as a consensus-based community moving forward. So Emily and Laura and the rest of the team will lead us. And next week, Christine Fulch, who has been gone all summer because her job as a cultural anthropologist takes her to Paraguay. I mean, tough life. She gets to go like live in Paraguay for 12 weeks every summer. Um, she will be back with us next week. She's back in town and is going to lead why I am a church goer and why for her being a part of a church is so important. And then the 14th, we will wrap up our really strong summer series um, with a community art project and kind of space for talk back of um, everyone getting the space to articulate why you are fill in the blank and what you bring to Emmaus Way because of that. Um, Last announcement, I do encourage summer sporadic attendance. We're all traveling. Um, but this, this is my first summer series, so it's a really high bar, I think. But this summer series has just been really profound um, and great. So we have podcasts. Mark puts, puts them up. Um, go to EmmausWay.net and listen. Hear some of the stories of our community. Um, I think you will be enriched, as we all have throughout the summer. Okay, I'm going to shut up now. Hand it over to Mark. He's going to lead us in a song of preparation.
song by Brian Wilson, who was um, sort of the mastermind behind uh, all the Beach Boys stuff. Um, he and his, his brothers, but uh, he was really the primary writer most of the time. Uh, and there's a, a really neat movie that came out, I don't know, a year or two ago, maybe, called Love and Mercy. That's sort of Brian Wilson's story. Um, and I, I, to me, this is a beautiful song of, of hope uh, that... Oh, there. Yeah, we're going to do it the way I'm doing it. Yeah. For, yeah, forget, forget what, pay no attention to your bulletins at this point. We're, this is what we're doing. This is what I'm doing. You can follow or not. You can sing the other song while I do this. It could be like a performance art piece. Um, so this, I, I, I think this feels like a good, uh, good place for this song, but maybe Ben had other ideas. Do you think the other one would be better here, Ben? I think you're already in now. All right, I'm already in. Yeah, but we could like build anticipation for this song. It'd be like, I can't wait to hear where this is going. (laughs) All right, we'll do this one. Um, A really neat movie uh, a year or two ago uh, called Love and Mercy that's about Brian Wilson's uh, life and his struggle with mental illness. And one of the things that I think is beautiful about this song is is sort of this choice uh, to choose life, to choose hope um, in the midst of what seems like a life in a world that doesn't really have much uh, hope in it. Um, and and he, he understood and still understands that firsthand in terms of his own mental health struggles. Um, the, the ability to, to choose uh, mercy, to choose love, uh, is a powerful one, and he exemplifies it well. So this is a song called Love and Mercy. Sitting in a crummy movie with hands on my chin Violence that occurs seems like we never win Love and mercy, that's what you need Love and mercy, that's what we need tonight. 
the peace to one another. So during this time, we're going to take just a couple of minutes. Feel free to get some food, drinks, things that are over there on the table. Stand up, greet one another, uh, pass the peace of Christ, and we will be back together with you in about four or five minutes. Okay, everyone, we're going to get started. Um, my name is Laura. I'm one of the co-lay leaders here at Emmaus Way. And I'm Emily. I'm the other co-lay leader. Um, so tonight we're going to represent um, the lead team of Emmaus Way and tell you kind of who we are, um, a little bit about how we operate in this community and how, why we operate that way. Um, and the biggest thing that we do, one of the biggest things we do together as a group is to make decisions together. Um, so to get started tonight, we're going to do everyone's favorite thing, which is to get in small groups of maybe four to five people and that you're sitting around and just talk about two things. Um, how do the different groups that you are in make decisions? So think about groups of friends, family, coworkers. Um, when you have to make those decisions as a group, what is the process that you use? Um, and then, so that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, what do you think about when you think about um, when you think about consensus? So as it relates to making a decision, um, if you were to try to make a decision by consensus, what would that mean? Um, yeah, so take about four minutes, and then we'll ask for volunteers from each group to kind of share what you talked about. That could be, you could practice making a decision of who will talk. <laughs> Go for it. Okay, all right. Does anybody have a story, either their own story or a story from another person in their group that they want to share about how you make decisions or what you think consensus looks like? Sarah would like to share. <laughs> Joy is here. Yeah, um, so Joy had a really interesting one. She went to a Quaker church for a while, and they do decisions based on consensus. So that means everybody has to agree. And some of us were like, wait, well. <laughs> yeah, that sounds pretty complicated. So, like, unanimity, consensus as unanimous agreement. But that is a main Joel. I've, I've been in groups that are sort of diametrically opposed. Like I've been in groups where 
there was a de facto leader who basically made all the decisions with probably minimal input from other people, but everybody either respected that person or like was enamored with that person or whatever and sort of went along with it. Um, and that, that, that has mostly been in like um, unofficial like friend groups or like that sort of sort of stuff. Um, and then I've also been in groups where um, I just started doing this in my job or updating like all of our documentation and stuff. And so we've been meeting just talking and talking and talking and talking about very fine details. And then at the end of the meeting, like we're off to go to other meetings and we make no decisions at all. Uh, we just started doing this, so hopefully we're going to figure this out, you know, eventually. But um, so far, it seems like we haven't been able to figure out how to do anything at all. It's because we just talk about it. Joel could almost have been talking about his experience on lead team. For the record, I was not. Yeah, I think like individual personalities can certainly dominate decision making, and maybe if you don't have that individual personality who dominates it, you get stuck in a quagmire without moving forward. Anybody else? So I worked in a, a pretty large church for a long time that um, that worked on consensus-based uh, decision-making. But how that was defined was that, um, at least in the leadership community, which wasn't a representative leadership community, but the, that leadership community was like 10 or 12 people, um, everybody had to vote yes on everything. And so it, so what, how that turned was the conversation was often about whether you would veto something or not. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of a lot of conversations like you, you kind of look around the room and say, wow, it looks like there's 10 or 11 yeses. So the question is whether Emily will veto or not. And so the, the dialogue, and Emily would have just done it for fun. You know? But that was, so that was, it, it, it's interesting that the dynamic kind of became going around how it, or how strong is your objection? Is it a veto-like objection? Is it a, I don't care that much about an objection. So. This is something we've talked about on Lead Team, and we've talked about, um, I'm just kind of throwing this out there, like what if in that situation you reframe the proposal the opposite way, right? Then you have a veto um, to maintain the status quo versus not to maintain the status quo. I don't know if I'm being clear, but... It's a challenging thing when that's the dynamic of a group, conform or block totally what's happening. Last shot. Yeah, that's good. Um, I just went on a family vacation, and the way that we do it is to like divide up days or meals, or like everybody can have room to have agency. So everybody gets a say, and they get their time. They don't have to take it, but it keeps the peace pretty well. Everybody has to be flexible to work with what others want. That sounds like a fantastic family vacation. (laughs) Sounds like a family vacation that's actually a vacation. File that one away. Um, Okay, so we talked about how different groups make decisions right now, and we're going to go ahead for the rest of the evening and talk a little bit about lead team, who we are, and how we make decisions and how that impacts our community. Um, This means this story is a little bit different than the stories that we've been hearing this summer. I'm uh, hoping that we'll have some love and mercy for Lead Team as we tell this story going forward. We're telling the story not of Laura and I, uh, but of a group of people 
uh, this group of people, Lead Team, exists to help manage and direct and enable the story of our whole community. So it's a difficult story for two voices to tell. We're going to ask other people to participate, but Lead Team certainly extends beyond the two of us, beyond the current iteration of Lead Team that we have right now. So you can think that Lead Team is bigger in both time, in the past, to the future, and in space, many more individuals than are going to be represented here tonight. But this story um, of Lead Team is really the story of how individual identities have gathered around a common vision and how we together, as a smaller subset of Emmaus Way, have been captivated by the gospel and how we have worked to live out the open table together. Um, Doing this, being captivated by the gospel and living into the open table, this idea of radical hospitality together, that's the work of our whole community, not just the work of lead team, But tonight, we're going to focus, at least for the vast majority of the time, on how lead team has done that work or tried to do that work. Uh, We might get a little scattered. We're going to try to be focused. But some kind of flagstones that you can look for in our discussion would be uh, how lead team makes decisions. How do we strive for consensus? Is consensus and unanimity 100% agreement? Is that the same thing? Side note, we noticed that uh, we might say anonymity instead of unanimity. That's not what we mean. Uh, always, I don't think we have any reason to say anonymity. There are no anonymous <laughs> decisions being made. But if we say that, uh, we mean unanimity, 100% agreement. Okay, so sorry, that's one thing you can look for. The unanimity versus consensus theme. Are those the same? Are they different? Another thing you can look for in the stories we're telling um, is how the team has worked together as a group. And the third thing would be how we have involved the larger community in our group. Those are our goals to convey to you um, as we go through. But perhaps for some of you, especially before we tell any stories of Lead Team, we should tell you who Lead Team is. Um, I feel like I've been talking a lot. Yes. So Lead Team is a group of. I guess five to eight individuals who serve as a governing body. Um, we are representative of the co-ministers at Mass Way, um, and people are appointed to lead team either by nomination from the larger community um, and the current lead team. Um, and so we rotate every three years ish. Um, also recognizing that our community is unique and that some people are here only for a short time and can't commit to the three years, um, but we would not turn any, we would not turn you away, right? Uh, so we have four main functions, um, this, um, which is to facilitate the community life and the missional engagement of a Mace Way. Um, we generate and perpetuate practices that reflect our community values. We oversee kind of the logistical and financial um, aspects of the community, such as setting the budget, um, and we act as the board of directors um, for the 501c3 nonprofit organization that is Amaze Way. Um, and so these four functions may sound simple and straightforward, um, but figuring out exactly what Lee Team does um, has not been so simple and straightforward, but it's a really important part of the story of Emmaus Way. 
So we have these four functions, some of which are more like missional and vision casting, and some of which are more logistical and legal in nature. We're going to try, ask a couple of people who have been part of Emmaus Way and Lead Team for a long time to give you an idea of how Lead Team has lived into these values at different iterations. So we thought we would ask Tim to start um, by telling us a little bit about why Emmaus Way was set up as a lay-led community and how the beginnings of Emmaus Way sort of created space for this Lead Team to emerge. Sure. So... um... I'm Tim. I think I know most everybody. And um, when, um, and I was, like, for lack of a better term, the founding pastor, which really didn't mean a whole lot. It just meant me and four or five friends were going to start a church for a variety of reasons. But one of the prejudices, and I guess when you're founding a community, you get to. Oh, okay. One of the prejudices that you can play out when you're founding a community is you get to say, well, there's a few things that, that I think it ought to be. And one of the ought to be's that was really significant for me early on was this idea that if there was anyone who was going to have a role like a staff role, which would be like myself or Molly or Ben or Mark or uh, Elizabeth, other people, uh, if you're taking some money from the church, you should be responsible for, to people who don't do that. And so that, to me, all along was this idea that I really want a community of people who are looking at the whole of church life, and I'm responsible to them. And again, this is just me, but I am not a fan of, of churches that are dominated by a single personality, a pastor. Uh, the vision of the community is really the vision of that person. And in, and in some ways, I think there are probably some beautiful churches that do that, but we had the sense that when we started early on, we just could be something different, that, that there was plenty of options if you were looking for that kind of charismatic individual who crafted a community of people to live out that person's vision. And I think also, as, as a lot of churches are started by people in their 20s, and I was 43 when Emmaus Way was, was, um, was getting started. And one of the things that I was aware of at 43 that I probably wasn't aware of at 25 was the limit of my own experiences. So that when, you know, like when we do a dialogue here and I'm speaking or Molly's speaking or whoever's leading that, we're pretty aware that I always read the Bible as a, a you know, a straight, straight white male um, and have come from certain experiences. And there's going to be other experiences in the community that are going to be different than my own. And so one of the things I thought is, you know, this would be absolutely critical as a Mayus way forms its values that they not be dominated entirely by uh, my experiences. So those were just a couple the early things of saying, hey, we want to be accountable to a community. Um, And even in the early days of Emmaus Way, we weren't sure that we would be a church. Uh, We knew that we would be a community of people that were deeply embedded in social change in Durham. And so we debated for a while whether we would be a church. But when we thought, well, well, we'll be a church, it seemed very obvious that a couple of things would jump out. One would be like Laura and Emily are, are very much they're they're the boss of the community at this point. The final word in certain ways, um, and, and 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 it's not me, and it's not Miley, and it's not you know that seemed like a really good thing. The other thing that I think we even early on thought might be interesting to experiment with was for our staff to be bivocational, so that in some way there weren't people who put the whole of their professional lives in in guiding Emmaus Way. And I obviously was not bivocational the first five years of Emmaus Way, but we were always striving for that and wanting to to uh, um, 
create a space for that. So that's kind of encoded because none of us work 60 hours a week. And if you do that, you tend to accumulate lots of information and lots of relationships. In some ways, it's a shared venture. So is that kind of what you're... Yeah, I guess, can you speak at all to any, like... We've talked a lot this summer about how Emmaus Way is a diverse community with lots of people coming from different perspectives. And, like, was... Was that true in the beginning? Is Were there challenges associated with having a lay-led community when there were a lot of different perspectives instead of one perspective of a founding pastor? Yeah, I think that was probably the crisis of the first year, is that uh, one of the things that we, we weren't sure we were even going to do sermons at first. We were going to do kind of collective, kind of liturgical, art experience things, but we did end up kind of, we wanted to be text-based and Kind of somebody who's already a 20-year pastor, it was natural that I, that I speak on a regular basis. But one of the things I used to hear very regularly from people is people would, some people would get mad and say, you never preach. I mean, we're, we really, like we're, when, you, when we go to church, we think that some person should authoritatively tell us what we should think about something. Uh, and, and actually give us something to do from that. And I never felt that that was, maybe it's just me, but I never heard a sermon in my life and went away going, that's exactly how it should be, and I'm going to go do that. Uh, and so maybe that was just me. But So the first year it was really hard because we wanted to craft this dialogue. So I was preparing by asking questions, which is still the same way. Molly and I prepare on you know during the week to ask questions to you and not that we don't have things to say. So that was hard for people. They really wanted people to tell them what to do at first. And I would get people would meet sometimes and say, I, you know, I just, I think you're giving up your authority as a pastor. And of course, looking back on 11 years, it was like, I've had my say uh, probably more than most of you want to hear. But on the other hand, there was something that began very early. The people that started coming to Emmaus Way were the people that wanted to build a community and build its values rather than being told what its values would be. And it became a community of people who wanted to come in and construct what the gospel might mean in our place rather than somebody telling them exactly what the gospel was. So that, I think, very prejudicially impacted the type of people that came to Emmaus Way, but it was really hard. The other thing that was really hard is we were very committed in terms of having a dialogue, of having theological and life diversity. Sometimes we've succeeded the diversity part. Sometimes we've failed at it. But I think consistently for 11 years, we've been really committed to theological diversity. And so there were people that, that at times wanted me to play kind of a cat and mouse game, like let people state different opinions, but at the end have the final word. And that was for me, the thing that I never wanted to do was to, I wanted to have relationships with people and credibility with them, but never kind of countermand people's opinions for the final word from God. So that was probably our, you know, it was beautiful the first year or two, but that was certainly what was hard the first couple of years. Thanks, Tim. Sounds like you were trying not to be that person that Joel was talking about in the room, like the personality that had the final say. Um, and yeah, someone that grew up in a community that you know had the founding pastor head of the church. It's a very different way to think of a church community. Um, and so, as lead team, kind of developed in the first few years of Emmaus Way, um, you know, to kind of oversee budget, finances, logistics. Um, 
I think that's probably one of the first functions that lead team had to kind of work out and embrace. Um, and I'm, I know from talking with Jenny and others at this, and Dave Efer, that that work is very hard and it was very overwhelming. Um, and I also want to just invite um, Susan Jakes to share just a few moments about some of those early experiences on lead team and um, how you all made those, those first kind of crucial decisions. I didn't really think about the stool when I planned what I was going to wear. <laughs> so, um, it is, it is. I have strong feelings about these stools. So, um, as within a young organization, we did a lot of things very haphazardly. We decided how to do our budget because I've been on personnel at the Bible Church and Phil had been the treasurer of lots of organizations and David had lots of experience in budgets and the three of us got together and made something up. And that's how we made most of our decisions. We made something up and everyone said, oh, that sounds good. You know, and it kind of fit with the parameters that we had. The first big decision we had was four years in. We had to decide what space we were going to come to. So we'd been on Francesca's for two years and we'd been downtown for two years and we needed a new space. Um, downtown was very expensive. And this was a interesting decision because there were two strong contenders and there was kind of strong pros and cons for each one. And there, so we did a lot of work visiting spaces. We pulled the community. We got lots of data um, about how to make the decision, but then it kind of came down to having to make the decision. And I teach consensus and governance um, as part of my work and facilitate all that work. So. I had just kind of been working in consensus, and Jenny was trying to figure out how we're going to lead this meeting, and I'm like, well, I can facilitate us through like a two-point a two consensus decision process. It would be a little modified than kind of a normal decision process. Um, and she's like, okay, that sounds good. So, <laughs> I think I even read a flip chart page. I think I remember either I've created one in my memory, or we had a flip chart page on the wall, and we had kind of two sides and while we're making this decision so we did a polling so the kind of modified was we pulled we did check-ins so it was a one through five process and you so three was I can live with the decision but I'm not happy with it four was it's pretty good I have some reservations and five was thumbs up and the whole time we were making the decision new information was coming and I can't remember if Wade was texting you new information because he had information he had spoken with the people in one of the um, facilities, and so everything that we had concerns about. So we were like listing concerns and putting our polling numbers, and everything we had concerns about with um, the other space kind of became true, <laughs> confirmed, and everything we had concerns about with this space became unconfirmed as we were making it. So it ended up being kind of easy, but it was a lot of contention that went into that easy decision in the end. Um, and I think the consensus process um, felt fair and like it was giving voice. But it was not some theologically driven... <laughs> we did nothing that way. We just kind of did things like... I mean, we're really practical people that were in the lead team at that point. And so we did things very practically. Yes, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah I think that's... Uh, a common theme in lead team decisions. Like, they might seem difficult at the outset, but we often, even today, reach unanimous consensus from a place where it seemed sort of impossible. Um, but 
we're going to next sort of ask Ben to talk about uh, how Lead Team has changed maybe over the years from a group of people that were very practically minded, logistically driven, to a space where our decisions are not driven only or even primarily by logistics, but uh, pursuit of mission as a community together. So yeah, to tell that story, I think you can tell it in two big points. I might come up with a third while I'm talking, but right now two. One would be, I think, I showed up on lead team in 2012, um, and that was the first lead team in which there had not been most of our staff simultaneously on lead team. Um, so that meant we brought, I think, three, I came on with Sarah Busman and Dave Thiessen, and we were new blood to fill in for people like Chelsea and Travis Green, who was married to one of our pastors, and Tim stepped off at that time. So we ended up with this lay group that had one staff representative, and that was Amy Green. And it was also a time in which, um, you know, we, our staff had grown. Tim had just stepped back to not being kind of full-time anymore. We had multiple bivocational pastors. So we had this two-part kind of structure with lead team and staff. And I think that really raised that really raised the bar on lead team, what we were required to do, because we had to, we were the only people in the room, right? We had a staff representative, and um, but we, the buck was kind of stopping with us in a, in a sort of elevated way. I watched Dave Eford lead that sort of process for a while, and so when I came on as lay leader a year after that in 2013, um, I just tried to sort of follow up and say, okay, like, we're the lead team, we're supposed to be, and I tried to just progressively involve us in more and more things. Also, there were just a lot of big decisions hitting. We had another space decision during that time. We had several staff people move away and had to make decisions about that. So it was a time of lead team coming in and making big decisions that had much more of a values, vision aspect. Um, and and we that wasn't a, primarily a staff conversation. It was mostly lay people doing that. The second thing I'd say is, I think lead team changed as the people that came on it changed. I think, you know, I feel like I very much learned this consensus-based focus from people like Susan and Phil and Dave, and I tried to take it on in my own way, and I think Sarah Busman and Dave Thiessen, the new people that are coming on board, had a big effect in the conversation of lead team and how we went about things. I think, you know, we could follow that forward with people like SK and Sarah Fox, and we kept continue to see this rolling change of lead team as the voices became different. So I think those those are two big things. So at this point, I want to sort of apologize if we've said a lot of names that you aren't familiar with or if it feels like we're doing a lot of like navel-gazing on our own history. Um, But like the rest of the series this summer, I think this was an important piece of a historical perspective of like who we are as a community and how we've grown. And so if you got lost in the... Um, history, I think what's most important to take from it is that Lead Team started out of a vision of a community that didn't have a single founding voice um, and grew from a group of people that like did the hard work of getting this community off the ground um, and is now a group of people that are trying to discern this broader community's mission and vision and move forward. Um, So that's where I think Laura and I find ourselves as lay leaders, trying to lead this 
group of people who is trying to discern the larger vision of the community forward. Um, so lead team and Emmaus Way is definitely still, as Ben often says, becoming. I'm not sure, like, feels unfinished. We're becoming what? But that's figured out together. What are we becoming together? Who is here uh, at Emmaus Way? Who is on lead team? This is what drives uh, what we will become. So with that in mind, that we're still becoming, the stories of the past influence us but don't like totally define us, we're going to tell you now about three relatively recent decisions that this most current iteration of lead team, the lead team that's focused on collective discernment, not as much on logistics. Three decisions that we've had to work through uh, and how these decisions have shaped the practices of lead team and have clarified some of the values that we treasure as a broader community. Um, yeah, and so we want to kind of highlight the way that the, decision, the decisions have shaped lead team kind of as a group internally, um, and also how um, lead team and the broader community work together and kind of integrate together, um, and how these decisions have shaped our understanding of what consensus is and how that's been uniquely maybe challenging in each of those decisions. Um, so we want to invite Brandon Bain. Um, Brandon is in his third and final year of lead team, <laughs> um, and he's going to share about um, the decision to that was, was presented that we might move to Duke Memorial or, or stay at Reality Center. So, thanks. Okay, so we I guess we're we're moving into the present here, but thinking about it, it was uh, this was a decision process that began in August of 2013, so three years ago now. So who who was actually here for the whole Duke Memorial thing? Okay, a fair amount of you then. Um, uh, so I want to highlight two things coming from the conversation so far is that the previous space decision of coming to reality, uh, and I was not here for that, but uh, from what I've heard, um, highlighted uh, an issue in terms of when there is a disagreement, particularly among staff members, about what the best decision is uh, that raised a question of how do you get to consensus uh, when there might be a difference or different evaluations of the two options. Uh, and the decision to move to reality, again, as recounted to me, uh, and, and then her hearing again today confirmed that it increased the role of lead team as a space for collective discernment. So it was one of the first times uh, that, that lead team sort of had to step into that role. Um, so I want to narrate, as far as I know, and, and I came on to lead team halfway through the process, so feel free to step in, Ben, or whoever else uh, uh, saw the beginnings of this to correct my narration of it. But uh, this was an opportunity that came about around August of 2013 when uh, the pastor, the interim pastor of Duke Memorial, Will Williman, who's also a professor at a Duke and I think a bishop in the United Methodist Church, approached uh, Dan Rhodes, uh, one of our co-pastors, uh, about the opportunity of possibly meeting at uh, Duke Memorial. And I think at the beginning, there was a lot of hope and, and um, excitement about this as a possibility. 
for, for a number of reasons. One, that um, things, the relationship and, and, and some of the space issues here at Reality were getting to a point of really needing to consider uh, another space. Um, there was excitement. That, that sort of was, there was a push factor out of Reality. There was a pull factor, too, towards Duke Memorial because there was excitement about possible partnership in terms of uh, their kids' ministry, particularly with older kids, as we've begun to think, what do we do as our, many of our kids are moving into middle school and high school age? Uh, there are potential missional partnerships, some that already existed that we shared in common with them. Um, and also the possibility of using or having a space where we could meet during the week um, where we could maybe permanently install some of our aesthetics and sound equipment, where we could have an office for our pastors, um, where we could have a copier and things like that, so some organizational opportunities. And I think one of the big pulls towards Duke Memorial from the beginning and throughout um, was the opportunity for our children. Uh, there was a playground there. They had several beautiful, beautiful uh, children's classrooms and I think there's a lot of excitement, particularly for those of us with kids or those involved with uh, uh, the children's ministry here for that as a possibility. So we began that process in August of 2013, and uh, we began by gathering information. And at the start of that process, Dan Rhodes and Will Willeman were, were at the center of, of it. You know, that, that's where it began. That's where the conversation, they were our primary nodes of communication. So we had to learn... Uh, well, we, we began sort of communicating through them, but we also had to learn how to develop systems for communication and getting to think about this um, as a community. And one thing we did, developed was a joint committee uh, that embodied a sort of a representative group of folks from here, people from uh, the aesthetics team, people from the kids' ministry, uh, people from staff and lead team that would then meet with a, a similarly constituted body from uh, Duke Memorial to begin to kind of think through the logistics of what it would be to move there. At the same time, we began to try out different spaces there. So we tried out three spaces, and according to my research, going back through emails, uh, in October we met in the main sanctuary, October of 2013. Uh, about a month and a half later, late November, we met in Whitford Hall, which was their fellowship hall, if you all remember that, where, where there's a kitchen, and and then uh, in June of the following year, in 2014, we met in their basement space that is called Spence Kale. Um, so there, we had three different services over the course of that year from August 2013 to July or June uh, 2014. Um, so so that's, you know, that's, that's the sort of big outline. Now, how did we go through the discernment process? I think staff, and I wasn't privy to these conversations, but my sense of things is that uh, staff recognized that there were a diversity of, there were, there were, you know, from a children's perspective, Elizabeth, correct me if I'm wrong, there were, there were a lot of pros to this possible move, right? Um, maybe? Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, but, you know, and I think they're from, in terms of organizational um, and Chelsea's not here, I don't think, tonight, but in terms of having an office and being able to have kind of a space to exist, I think there were a lot of pros. Uh, I, I remember Dan talking about just being able to meet with people for pastoral reasons during the week. Um, so I think there are pastoral, organizational, children's team pros. I'd probably, Mark, I don't know, I don't know how you'd pitch it from a sort of sound and music perspective. There were potential pros, but also a lot of concerns from the beginning. 
Um, so, so, so right away we had this you know, combination of uh, pros and cons. Um, but, and this is something that Tim has reiterated here, and uh, it, it was helpful to hear that I never got a, the sense, either as a member of the community, and then later jumping on halfway through as part of lead team, that staff ever directed this conversation. I thought there was a buy-in to fully explore it, um, to do their best to kind of evaluate things, but I never felt like staff, anyone from staff, was trying to direct it or steer it towards their perspective. Um, so how did lead team get involved? So I would say it occupied our conversations for, for almost a full year, from August 2013 to August 2014. Uh, I joined lead team in January of 2014, along with Emily and Greg, um, and what we quickly found out is that there were, there were a number of concerns. There were a lot of moving pieces. And it's an interesting way to jump onto lead team right in the midst of a huge decision. Um, we were trying to find the right meeting space within Duke Memorial. We were increasingly concerned about how to communicate with Duke Memorial leadership. Uh, there were concerns about uh, Duke Memorial's expectations of us. Do they want us to become a part of their church, or would, could we maintain independence in our identity? Also, along this time, Will Williman, who was interim, we found out was moving on, and Dan Rhodes uh, graduated, got his THD at Duke, and got a job in Chicago and was moving on. So the two initial conversation partners, halfway through the process, we find out that they're, they're moving on to other opportunities. Um, then we had to sort of think through, and this is something that emerged out of conversations, and I want to talk about how, how then it became a community-wide decision. Uh, we had to think through what it meant to actually meet. This is actually a church. This is a church building. Weirdly enough, we kind of enter from the side. There are no pews, but this was built as a church. But I don't think many of us think about this as a church. Um, I didn't initially when I first came here. Um, it all, I only you know, eventually saw sort of a cornerstone or something that said it was, a, I think, a CMA church at one point. Uh, but it's used for another ministry, one of our missional partnerships, Reality Ministries. And so I don't think we primarily think of it as a church. And one of the biggest factors that emerged in lead team conversations but connected to conversations with the community was what it would mean to meet in a place that looks like a church. <laughs> and what, who would that foreclose? Who would that... You know, who came to Emmaus Way at a point where they might have been burned by traditional churches uh, and found a space, uh, an open space? Uh, and who might it foreclose in the future who said, who would see us as um, representing something different than the way that we understand ourselves? So I just want to mention a couple uh, moments that we solicited feedback uh, from the community uh, and, then, and then a couple takeaways from that experience. So lead team solicited feedback after both of the first two visits in October and November. And I remember this particularly because going back through my emails, I wrote emails to Dan Rhodes and Ben after those visits. Uh, and it, I think it was the first time I'd been going. We'd been going for about a year. It was the first time I felt invested. I felt like I wanted to speak into a situation. It might have been what actually got me trapped into doing lead team <laughs> uh, later on now that I think about it. But... Um, uh, yeah, so I think there, I know that there was, there was uh, already conversation and solicitation of feedback because I took advantage of that myself as a part of the community. Um, jumping on to lead team in January, there, we had this important 
meeting on January 12th of 2014 where we spent the whole night. I don't know if you all remember, anyone remember this night where we all broke up into small groups for the whole night. And it's the first time I met Joel just stepped out, but Joel Luber, I remember, he was in our group. Um, and we, we, we all discussed really the, actually kind of the five parts that you're talking about. We didn't number them that way, but we had strongly disagree, disagree, agree, strongly agree as options. Uh, I guess maybe we had something like, I'm not sure, in the middle. Um, and we solicited, we polled, and we got about 75% of people from that gathering saying that they generally either agree or strongly agree with pursuing Whitford Hall, that second option, um, as, as a possibility for moving. Uh, and we also gathered qualitative statements. So the three Sarah, Sarah Bussman, Sarah Fox, Sarah Fishback compiled this wonderful document that had uh, people's concerns laid out in there. You know, these, these are the questions I might have. And one of the concerns that emerged from there were, was the question of, of uh, how would we would remain open as a community. So A, what would, it, what would it mean to meet in this very traditional church? And would that intimidate people? Would we still be as open as we seem to be here? Uh, but also questions about, in that particular space, about uh, folks who have physical challenges in terms of getting around. It was on the second story. So would, would that mean that we were not as open and accessible as, as, as we are here at Reality? Um, so I thought that was an important theme that emerged. Um, that Whitford Hall, for a number of reasons, kind of disappeared as an option as the page we were on and the page that Duke Memorial, <laughs> we thought they were on, turned out to be very different over the course of the spring. We also began to find out that the pe- folks we were talking to there were not necessarily the folks who were ultimately making decisions on their behalf, that there was, in fact, sort of a power <laughs> behind, uh, there was a power behind the throne. Um, so, so, th- th- so things kind of began to fray, I think, a little bit, but then... A third option emerged, a meeting in the basement space, Spence Kale, uh, around May and June of 2014. We had an open walkthrough opportunity on June 29th of 2014. The kids team, parents and kids team met uh, and kind of envisioned what it would be, what, what we have envisioned for the future for the children's ministry. And then the entire community, I'm sure many of you remember this, on July 20th of that year, uh, we spent our whole service uh, meeting here at Reality, who remembers this, and walking from, from Reality to Duke Memorial through the space and having sort of a prayer liturgy prepared for discussion along the way, for prayerfulness about uh, this community here and what our identity is in that community. And it's one of the most powerful things I've been involved with at Emmaus Way, um, just for the sort of deep conversation, deep listening that happened in that space, and real openness to collective discernment. Uh, so we did meet on July 29th. We actually had a service there. Very quickly after that service, it emerged through, through all sorts of conversation that Duke Memorial was not going to be the best option. At the same time, Phil Jakes had been maintaining conversations with reality. We'd had other conversations with reality. And like the previous decision, it turned out a lot of concerns we had were, were maybe not so big of concerns anymore. Space was getting upfitted. We found ways of investing in this space. And, and it became very clear that um, the right thing to do was to stay. And so to kind of summarize that narrative from my perspective, I don't think, I never saw us as, as ever even hopeful that we would achieve unanimity or full consensus on that decision because 
the, the two options looked, had a lot of pros and cons. And at one point, I think even probably a majority, as, as through our polling we saw, wanted to go to Duke Memorial. Um, but by the time that decision was made at a lead team gathering July 29th, I think in, in Mark and Katrina's house, if I'm, I haven't forgotten, um, we had unanimity. And, and we were pretty sure that the community was, was, uh, had a strong consensus, if not unanimous that we should stay at reality. Uh, so a takeaway here is that that took a full year. That took a lot of time and work and collective listening. Um, but we did come to uh, a remarkable amount of clarity with that particular decision. Uh, and we also found that space, although it seems logistic, logistical, is central to Emmaus Way's identity. And we saw all the ways that it was through that process of listening. Thanks, Brandon. Yeah, that was really a great narrative of what happened. And I think um, it highlights really well that we can achieve, that achieving unanimity took a long time. A lot of work was possible. That's one takeaway. And then also that lead team is fully living into, recognizing and living into this missional Direction, Like, what does this logistical choice that we have to make say about who we are welcoming and who we are less welcoming to in our community? Um, so the space decision was finalized, as um, Raina said, about two years ago. So summer, late summer 2014. Um, in early 2015, my first month or two on lead team, um, we were again faced with um, another decision about what who Emmaus Way is as a community and our welcome. So um, we received, Lee Team received two independent requests um, from the community to publicize our welcome to the LGBTQ community on um, uh, internet resources. Yeah, on the internet resources, right. Um, and so, and the reason that this was a difficult and crucial decision um, for Lee Team was was not, and we want to make sure this is a clarifying point, that not because Lee questioned the welcome of the LGBTQ community or the participation of anyone in our open table. That, that was never in question. Um, the reason was that it was a difficult and crucial decision was because we faced the situation. So we have, have active and beloved, committed co-ministers in our community who are members of the LGBTQ community. Um, and if we chose at the, to not put ourselves on this list, we felt we were communicating a lack of welcome um, for um, the people in that community um, who are also in our community. Um, and on the other hand, we have active, beloved, committed co-ministers um, who have deeply held theological beliefs. Um, and that would lead them to wonder if they also were not impl implicitly unwelcome if we decided to put our name on an open and affirming list. Um, so everyone on the team desired to kind of preserve and maintain a full welcome for all. Um, we couldn't reach unanimity about the best way to do this. Yeah. Uh, I'm struck hearing these stories that I'm not going to... Like, maybe if we had spent... Maybe we gave up hope too soon. Maybe if we had spent years and years, we could have reached... Uh, full unanimity on this decision. But at the time, and even in retrospect, it really seems like, like we were committed to the same vision to welcome all, 
uh, and the difficulty to decide what to do was about how to do that, how to move forward in this vision of welcoming all. Um, we also, uh, there's a tendency at Emmaus Way to like kick the can or wait for full discernment to happen later, but we felt that we couldn't wait for years for full, unanim- full unanimity because what we did right away had a consequence. Maintaining the status quo of not being on the list would have had the same consequences towards the LGBTQ members of our community as actively choosing to not be on the list. Um, So we felt a responsibility to move quickly and carefully to really own the decision that we were making about whether or not to uh, advertise our welcome to the LGBTQ community. And I think we've we quickly learned that we needed different tools and the tools that Brandon shared um, and that Susan had shared. So in the space decisions, there was a long time striving for unanimity within lead team and within the broader community. There were special teams. There was community-wide meetings. There were walks from here to Duke Memorial, discussions, um, feedback. And with the decision to put ourselves on the resource list, we recognized pretty immediately that unanimity was not going to happen whether it was in lead team or in the broader community, um, but it was a it was a very difficult decision to make because the same tools that we had had for previous decisions were um, we realized that this decision required different um, tools. Um, and if we aren't looking for unanimity, what are we looking for in this? This was, I think, I mean, at least during my time on lead team uh, and. I can't speak for other people's time on lead team, but certainly for my time on lead team, this was a pivotal moment about what are we trying to do as a community? Are we trying to get uh, everyone to conform to a same, the same vision? Uh, are we trying to foster dialogue around a decision? How do we do those things? Um, and it, it was difficult, and I don't think we necessarily did everything like nearly as well as we could have, um, but it was a pivotal point for helping lead team understand what we're striving for as a community. Um, So we decided that these polling the entire community, having multiple Sunday services devoted to discussing this issue would not have been as helpful or fruitful as it was for the space decision. For the space decision, we wanted to um, create a, like, it seemed like the best way to value diverse voices in our community was to provide a public forum for people to talk. It did not feel the same way for this decision, that a public forum uh, might be hurtful to some more than it was helpful. Uh, I think in retrospect, other people might disagree. I think we probably failed to identify what the best way was, at least immediately, to value diverse voices in our community. Uh, But what has emerged from this is a real commitment to do that going forward. Yeah, and so we, the decision that, um, or the tools that we ended up using were that um, lead team, after months of discussion, we took a vote. Um, and went with the majority um, rule and decided to join one of the lists that was put forward. I think there were two that were put forward. 
Um, we decided to join the local Durham resource list for LGBTQ community. Um, and like Emily said, we decided that the public forum wasn't the best way to communicate and, and discuss this with um, the community. We decided to um, use different tools like relational meetings um, and things like that to communicate decision and to, to also receive feedback from the community. Um, and we wanted to try to preserve everyone's welcome. Um, and so we, and we also, for those that might feel implicitly unwelcome. Um, so we took a while to make this decision and it took, we took a while to implement the decision. Um, but we, through discussion on the team, included the words theologically diverse on our statement. And we tried to, um, to accurately yeah, so we decided to join this uh, resource list that lets you describe your community. Um, you were on the community resources for the LGBTQ Center of Durham, and it gives you, you can link your website and provide a description of your community. And in our description, in an effort to preserve welcome for all, we included the words theologically diverse. Uh, and another thing that we're endeavoring to do in our effort to preserve welcome for all is to create more spaces um, for more voices to participate in dialogues around theology and gender and sexuality. This is still in development. Uh, I think we have a couple speakers that we're working with bringing in in the fall, and we'll try to have some spaces both on Sunday nights and around those speakers' visits to have these dialogues. So what did we learn from this process? Um, we and how did this shape lead team and how did it shape our kind of broader community vision so we it kind of crystallized some of the priorities that emerged from the space decision so we felt a responsibility to the community to, to pursue radical hospitality and to pursue an open table for all and kind of recognizing that that makes that makes every, not, not everyone might be comfortable we might be made to feel uncomfortable at some point um, and it revealed that even though we claim to value authentic dialogue and relationship building, that we are uncomfortable with dissent. This is, kind of goes back to what Tim shared, you know, like everyone is expected to say yes, and, and if you vetoed, it was a big deal. But it took us a long time to move forward with implementing this decision we made. Um, and we, we realized that there needed to be space for, for authentic dialogue, and that includes dissent. Um, and, and we struggled with, with wondering, is consensus possible without unanimity? Um, are we being tr true to the vision of being a consensus-based community? So those are some, some of the things that we learned. Yeah, so it, it was difficult to sit on a lead team that had, did not have unanimity. Um, but I think, ultimately, this was a really transformative, at least, for me, uh, and valuable thing for lead team as a whole. Like this was a discussion that lead team needed to have. Um, how do we balance our responsibility to perpetuate practices that embody our community's values and preserve space for authentic dialogue about those values? If we're not striving simply for conformity to a vision, to conformity to agreement, like being a yes man, what are we actually looking for and how do we move forward? I think we're still gonna be working on this question for a long time, but a couple of things have 
emerged recently from this. Um, first, lead team, for us, we have a set of guidelines about how to practically move forward. What are the logistics that we do when we have a decision uh, that is not unanimous? Uh, we're not going to go through our plan for that tonight, but I think there are copies available of our outline of how to move forward in the face of dissent, if you're interested in that. Um, I think Ben has some. Oh, they're on the table. So if you want to pick one up on your way out and read about what it's like to be on a lead team when there's dissent, feel free. <laughs> um, but So we have this practical resource, but more importantly, like lead team has no choice now. We fully recognize that for our community, consensus and unanimity are not the same thing. We're not striving to reach conformity. We're striving to have authentic dialogue. And if authentic dialogue results in unanimity, that is great. That would be excellent. No one is saying unanimity is bad. Um, but we, as a lead team, have internalized this idea that reaching consensus without conformity, balancing multiple voices and perspectives in a united missional vision, even though it's difficult, that's the work we want to do as lead team, and that's the work we invite our whole community into. Um, so I think that was the hardest decision lead team has faced. Uh, Recently, we have a, one to end on a less hard decision note. We have um, one more example of a decision we've made. Joel Luber, uh, by popular request, <laughs> is going to come and talk again about our decision to uh, how we decided on a budget when we were facing some budget cuts. Thanks. Oh, that's that's live. Um, okay, so. Um, some of you might have been here uh, sometime in May when I came up here to talk about uh, a possible budget shortfall that we had for last year uh, in very, very scary terms. Um, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say just a little bit more about, about uh, what happened with that and how we sort of made decisions around how to deal with that. Um, but f uh, one thing I did want to uh, step, step back just a little bit and say something about our organizational structure that I don't think has been mentioned yet. Um, you know, so I grew up, as I, you know, said that day, I grew up in what I consider to be, a, you know, a more, you know, sort of normal church. Um, and uh, this, is, this is an organizational structure that, you know, I think a lot, I think a lot of um, older churches probably have uh, more likely than, than we have. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of churches have uh, official membership roles where you have to, like, you know, sign up to join and be an actual member of the organization. And at least the church I grew up in, and I don't know if, you know, I'm, I'm sure other people here have, have uh, uh, you know, grew up in churches that had similar organizational structures. Um, there was a church council or an, you know, elder board or whatever that acted essentially as lead team does, as the, the managing board of the organization, but written into the constitution or the bylaws of the organization was um, uh, rules about what sort of decisions had to have uh, vote of the entire congregation. And, and so things like uh, calling a pastor, I think would need like a 60 or 75% yes vote. Um, the budget would need a majority vote every year. Um, certain, other, certain other big decisions, um, the, the uh, council could, or the, the elder board could say, we're gonna, we're gonna put this up for vote with everybody. Um, 
We don't have that option because Emmaus Way does not have that same organizational structure. We do not have any members at all. Um, we like y'all, but uh, nobody here is officially a member of uh, Emmaus Way other than the lead team, uh, technically, which uh, is actually how a lot of other nonprofits work, you know, like the Animal Protective Society or whatever, you know, the board is the organization. In like a legal sense. Yeah, yes, yes. I just, I just, I want, I want to say I'm, I'm, I, I am, I am talking about like our, our um, official legal governance here. Um, yeah, so uh, that, that uh, puts us, I think in, in, not, I, I want not quite a bind, but like, like that there's, there's a, um, there's an impulse on lead team to always want to be responsible to the community, but we don't quite have the legal framework to do that. Um, and so what we this try to do... This might be next year's lead team's uh, yeah. update, how we're um, legally responsible to the community. Well, uh, well that... Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll just keep going. Um, I, I'm not recommending any changes. I just want to make that clear. And I'm not saying that how we do things is bad either. Sorry. If it, if it sounded that way. Um, uh... So, so uh, in, the, in past years, we have, like, the lead team has put up the budget for a vote, but that doesn't mean anything, actually. Like, we read the bylaws, and that means nothing. And so the last couple of years, we've Again, decided... legally. No, 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 what, no, this, I just... Okay, um, the, the, the last couple of years, we have decided, lead team decided that it was misleading to put, to put something up for a vote that where the vote didn't, ma- didn't mean anything. Um, and so uh, over the, I think the past two fiscal years now, we've proposed a budget and s- opened up uh, avenues for less formal communication with people, uh, giving, pe- giving people space to ask or to, to tell us, does this budget value the things that you value in this community? And that's what we talk about, like when we talk, um, when we and lead team talk about like setting the budget, we think about what is the community value and how do we represent that in numbers in a spreadsheet. And for this particular decision, um, you know, I, uh, in, in, uh, for the first three quarters of the last fiscal year, we were running uh, under, um, we, Contributions were running under budget about three months, two months before the end of the fiscal year. We figure out we're going to have like a fifteen or $20,000 shortfall if we don't do something. And so we took a two-pronged approach right then. The first was every week to get up here and, uh, you know, uh, um, preach, preach some fire and brimstone about what horrible things might be happening. Um, and the other was to make a, make a contingency budget about what you know, how do we cut? How do we cut things that we value to be a realistic and sustainable community? If um, we don't have the uh, contributions that we've had in previous years, and um, it was it was tough to go through this, and uh, we, we actually delegated lead team delegated a lot of this discussion into the finance and personnel team and so they they did a lot of the work and then they proposed it to us and then we did some more work kind of tweaking it um and uh this unlike the two decisions the two previous decisions that were you know case studied um the status quo wasn't an option for this 
And so, like, we had to do something. We had to do something different than what we had already been doing. And we had to decide what that was. Um, but it was also not, uh, not a decision that was stark. Like, the, the two previous case studies uh, were things where it was like, either this or that. Um, and with the budget, it's like, well, you know, uh, the, the finance personnel team, I think they came, they came to us with, like, a more or less constant percentage cut across everything, which they had decided was the most fair way to treat different constituencies within the community, which I think, broadly speaking, is probably something I agree with. But then we kind of looked at it and thought, are there things that are going to be hurt more by this cut than other things? And where can we where can we cut where can we cut money and do less damage and give back to something that could be more damaged by cutting the money? And so, um, what we ended up doing was uh, giving a little bit more money back to children's ministry and uh, took some of that from some other places, including um, musicians. Um, and I'm going to jump in for a minute and say like. Lead team spent a lot of time making this decision about what cuts to do and whatever, but we were really encouraged to find out that we wasted our time doing that because uh, the community's response to our first prong of the approach... Uh, I, was get, I was getting there. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no it's fine. <laughs> uh, ...was so strong that we actually exceeded our proposed budget, so we were able to grow in areas that we hadn't been before. Yeah, so, so we did this a second time and decided... Now that we have more money, where do we add? And uh, I think we, we um, basically just reinstated the budget from the previous fiscal year and then did some particular, uh, particular places to put a little bit of extra money, um, including giving our staff a uh, inflation raise for the first time ever, maybe. I'm not entirely sure, but uh, definitely the first time since I've been paying attention. Yeah, so... Um, thank you to the community for that. If you want a more detailed budget, we can provide that to you immediately. But um, I, can we wrap up? Yes. Thank you, Joel. Um, so we spent a long time tonight talking specifically about lead team and how we operate. Um, we hope, though, that the connection between lead team and who we are as Emmaus Way, this community, uh, that as we've heard about this summer and we'll continue to hear about, that this community that endeavors to embrace the diversity we have is clear. We hope it's shown on lead team and in our community. So uh, working together to embody the open table, to preserve and generate authentic dialogue while living together into missional vision is the work of all of us. To- um, so we spent this time talking about lead team's place in this work, but lead team is not the only place um, for that to happen, um, the dialogue and this living together and this relationship that we have. Um, and so Mark is going to come and lead us in confession and absolution. And after that, Wendy is going to lead us. Wendy's also a member of lead team um, into that work together at the open table. Thank you. Thanks. I think what we're going to do is we're going to switch up the order of that. So we will uh, we'll do this on after this, but Wendy's going to invite us to the table together and then, and then we'll do a song together.
have never been up here by myself, so this is pretty scary. <laughs> but, um, consensus tries to embrace all voices respectfully while still moving forward to walk together within the values of the community. It attempts to meet others as thou rather than as an it. It requires us sharing our stories and perspectives and knowing each other. It places a high value on our inter interconnectedness and humanity. It reminds me of the Southern African concept of Ubuntu, which means I am because we are, or a person is a person through other people. My humanness is given to me by other people. It is co-created. It is the philosophy in which the sense of community is extroverted and newcomers are embraced warmly. One of our values as a community is our open table. In our communion, we invite all to the table. Your belonging here is unquestioned. All are welcome, and we pour wine or juice for one another, saying, the blood of Christ shed for you, um, and break bread for one another, saying, the body of Christ broken for you. It is a place where our humanity is honored. There is no hierarchy. We are given our humanity in the participation here with others. So, after Mark's song, if you could come to the table. So even though we, we sort of flipped the order of confession absolution with invitation to the table, um, I think even, even given that sort of flip, I think what I want to communicate with this song uh, is is this sense that that we're saying to be in community with one another means that we have to practice uh, forgiveness with one another. Uh, we have to practice the uh, act of asking forgiveness from one another, the act of loving one another. That's kind of what this song to me is, is sort of saying, is that if we, if we don't give each other second chances, if we don't give each other uh, chances to make right what was wrong or to uh, care for one another uh, in ways that maybe we haven't always cared in the past uh, that maybe that's what uh, life and living in community is all about is the opportunity for second chances
all together at the table. 